0: our series in the book of Hebrews. And uh, it, it's interesting, I, I think, as we think about our some of the trends of, of culture today, uh, one of the things that has become uh, maybe uh, happening a lot, we see, is division and polarization. Um, we, we're, we've gotten really good at that, actually. Um, this idea of either us versus them, it's an either-or. We don't do well with uh, nuance. Uh, we, we love the, the headlines, uh, often without reading uh, the full story, and we know that headlines can be deceiving, as we actually have read the whole story before. Um, and the reality is, is, is we learn and we talk about the polarization, the division, the separation that's happening now. This is not something new. And one of the ways it's played out in the church for uh, many years, certainly uh, in my experience, but I think going back much farther, is that we, we have these ideas in our heads of what kind of church uh, a church can be. And we, we draw these lines. There's the church that, that, uh, that preaches um, brim, hellfire and brimstone, uh, judgment, uh, wrath. And then there's a church that preaches grace and, and love and acceptance and uh, encouragement and and we, we tend to, often in our minds, put uh, a church into one or the other category. And, um, and so the idea of having uh, this promise of both hope and assurance at the same time of warning uh, doesn't often happen in our mind. It doesn't happen well in our mind. We, we think of it as either or. Let me encourage you that in this passage, which is a part of the gospel story, we, we find... Uh, those things at play. I'm not going to talk about uh, hellfire and brimstone. Those aren't, those are the last time I'll use those words. And, uh, and, and yet, what we find is warning right alongside hope and assurance in this passage. Again, I think that is the gospel story, but certainly here in Hebrews chapter 3, we find incredible hope and assurance given at the very same time that we give some pretty stern warning. And we're going to see the two points this morning are that we would consider, and we find from verse one, that's consider Jesus. And then two, we would take care. That's from verse 12, that we would take care of ourselves, that we would watch ourselves. So let me pray and we'll take a look. Lord, we do pray that you would, in this moment, meet us here, that we would hear both your warning and your assurance that we would come uh, out of this, these few minutes both encouraged and uh, sober-minded. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The, the first call that we find here is to consider Jesus, verse one. And we've talked about the fact that Hebrews is all about the fact that Jesus is better, greater, superior. He is greater than anything. Fill in the blank. And we spent some time looking at the fact that Jesus is better than the angels. We had to start with the fact that the angels are great. That's not something we think a lot about. The angels are amazing beyond what we could even imagine. And yet Jesus is better than that. And so we come now to consider Jesus, and particularly these first six verses talk about the fact that he is better than Moses. Moses is not, again, something else that we ourselves are tempted to think that's, that's the central part. Moses, he, that's the central part of my faith. Right? That's, that's not where we go. So why, why Moses? Um, why, why is that the discussion? Because um, there is this clear argument that Jesus is better than Moses. Why? Um, Moses, it, it notes, is faithful in all of his house. It says that it, this, in verse 2 and verse 5. It's this reference to Numbers chapter 12, where Moses is described as faithful in all the house of God, that he is this servant um, that is really central to their faith. And we remember that the, the Hebrews are having a crisis of faith. Things are not going well for them. They have suffered, and we learn later, not yet to the point of death, but they've had some significant suffering. And their temptation, though it might not be ours, their temptation is to turn back to Judaism, to turn away from Jesus, to think that there are other options that are better than him, because things are not going as they planned. Uh, They're in the midst of this crisis of faith, and we might, and we might have had in the past, or even now, crises of faith, and it's helpful for us to think about what are the things that we might be tempted to turn to, might not be Moses, but for them, uh, that was the case. He was this central character in understanding even what it meant to follow God, to walk with him, to be a part of his people. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, of the Scripture, and he was a central character in that as well. He was sent by God, uh, an apostle of sorts, and he uh, operated as one who was a conduit between God and his people, um, so much so that, that God said he was a faithful servant in Numbers chapter 12, So that God met with him face to face. And that was a really big deal. So that Moses would then communicate uh, the truth of who God was to his people. He he was the one we see in verse 5 who testified to the things that were spoken of later. That's this reference to him delivering the words of God, the revelation of God. God, the creator, has decided, I want to be in relationship with my people I want them to know what is true, how to live in this world that I created. What's good for them is my creatures. And, and he does that through Moses. And, and Moses was also used as central to the event of salvation that is referenced again and again and again. So when he gives the Ten Commandments through Moses, he reminds them, I am uh, the Lord your God who saved you out of slavery, out of the land uh, of Egypt. This was, this, this was central to the way that they understood who God was and what he did. He saved them from slavery through miracles, through this incredible work, and he used Moses. Moses was a really big deal. It's hard to imagine uh, a, a bigger character at this point. He had a priestly role. Uh, he was referred to as, as a priest in Psalm 99. He had this Again, this apostolic role, so that when we see Jesus reference himself as the apostle and high priest of our confession, there is a comparison to Moses, and he's, he's even better. So this was a big deal. It's, again, it's hard for us to imagine. We have to do our best to, to put ourselves in the mindset of the original hearers of this, probably what is best described as a sermon letter, uh, it's a little bit, seems to be a little bit of a hybrid. It doesn't fit categorically into one of, those, uh, one of those categories. But this sermon letter, we can imagine how the original hearers, readers, would have heard it. And Moses was like, he was the thing for them. And so this argument that Jesus is better was a really big deal. And, and here, you don't find the writer, just as he did with angels. He's not downplaying Moses. He's saying in comparison, there is something even better. Makes that very clear in these first few verses. So that in verses three and four, we find there's this comparison. Moses was the house built by God, but Jesus is the actual builder. And that Jesus is, in verse four, we can find he is God himself because God built all things. So there's this picture that Moses is the creature, but Jesus is the creator. So there's more power. And he's worthy of more glory, we see in verse 3, because he's the creator and not the creature. We actually talked about this in Sunday school. Romans 1 talks about the fact that our temptation, as ones who have rebelled against God, who have sin in our hearts, this is why we confess each week, is that we would exchange the glory of God, the creator, for the glory that does exist in creation, but is less than. So we would begin to worship creation, that could be one another. That could be things that he's created. Instead of worshiping the creator, that's what we find. Um, that's where we find this comparison. Jesus is the creator. So he's much more worthy than Moses himself. And then we also see this comparison in verses five and six that, that as Moses was this faithful servant in all the house of God. And that's a really, really big deal. That's valuable and important. He did that as a servant, but Jesus does it as a son. He's a part of the family. We know as well, even looking at verse 4, it's not only is he a son, he is God himself. So his role is much more significant, much more worthy of glory. So Jesus is better than Moses. So we might be tempted to underestimate the role that Moses had uh, in their thinking, and certainly he is downplayed in our own thinking, but the question that we could ask is, what are the things for us that we might be tempted to turn to? What are the things that become central for us? And that could be just in life in general, right? What what is central in our lives, or what might we be tempted to turn to uh, instead of Jesus? If we're in the midst of crisis of faith, um, and I think we've talked about this before, in Hebrews there is this Warning against what has often be called, been called in the church deconstruction, deconstruction of our faith. And I'll, I'll give the caveat, as I often do. There are some things that we should deconstruct when we have uh, been a part of places where there's sin or brokenness, um, where there has been uh, detrimental or abusive theology. Those are things that we should deconstruct. But there's a, what we find here is a warning against Deconstructing to the point where we no longer have belief in Jesus and follow him as the greatest thing that there is. Uh, there is, that is there's a warning here against that. But in, those midst, in the midst of those moments that we will struggle with at different times of, of having crises of faith, what are the things that we're tempted to turn to? Uh, it might be another faith. It might be uh, the faith of atheism. The certainty that there is no God, but more likely than not, it's, um, it's just a move toward being agnostic about the reality of the world. And and then just kind of going with the flow. And in the middle of that, what, what we actually find is it's a temptation to rely upon ourselves and our own ability to evaluate the world and evaluate God himself. That we as the creatures put ourselves uh, in the position of being able to judge God and say the things that we like or don't like or agree with or don't, and so that we just kind of go with the flow. That, that's, in our culture, the temptation to, if we move away from faith, it's often toward, uh, really, ourselves. Um, I think that's pretty unique in the history of the world, that this hyper-individualistic culture in which we view ourselves as the center, able to define what is good and bad and what is true and what is not true for ourselves, um, uh, there's a book that I would recommend to you called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, who talks about the history of thinkers and how we've gotten to the point where we are and that it is unique in history. Um, and uh, we get to talk about uh, the, the pride that we have in our own position in history and time and that we can uh, make these determinations and be and do so with this certainty, even as many of these thoughts are quite new but that, that might be a temptation that we would have if we were moving away from faith. But I think we could ask the same thing if we are people who are saying, okay, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I want to be a part of the people of God and I want to trust in him. But we could, we could tend to put things before Jesus. What are the things that are central to our faith or our Christianity or to our being a part of the church? What if someone were to ask you the question, why do you go to Fountain Square Presbyterian Church? Maybe a maybe bigger question than that. I'd be curious about that. Um, and there could be all kinds of reasons, but maybe it's a bigger question. Why do you go to church? Or why are you a Christian? How might you answer that? What is central to the thing that, that directs you to, to church or to God or to faith? There could be all kinds of things that we might fill in the blank or might answer that question with. I, I go for... Uh, good morals, either for myself or my children. Maybe you go for, you, you might come to a specific church for the music. You might go for peace, inner peace. Or maybe you, you have a bigger picture of peace. Maybe it's a connection to history. Um, maybe as a part of the morals, you think, you know, I, if I go, I'm going to get it together. You, you do it for justification. This is something that's going to justify me before God that's going to give me worth. Maybe you go just out of habit. Um, one of the big ones that might be uh, the case for uh, something that's valuable in our circles is we go for community. I go because I'm, I'm connected to people who love me, and I love them, and there's, there's community there. And, and save getting it together, um, all of these things that I've mentioned are actually really good things, right? Like those things should flow from experiencing Jesus. But let me be clear, the reason that we should ultimately go to church or seek to be a part of the people of God or have faith is Jesus himself. He is what we find again and again in Hebrews, the greatest, the best. So we talk about better, superior, all those. In comparison to everything else, he is the center of everything that we do as a church. And he should be the center of everything that we do in our lives. There is nothing outside of him that uh, that should take priority over him. He is the center of everything. And yes, 100%, he informs all those other things. So the, there, there is a morality that flows. There is peace that flows. There is beautiful worship and music. There's a connection to history and There is justification that comes and creating good habits is right and good and we end up with community, but those things can never be the first thing. They can never be the priority because those things will be twisted if they are. And so the call is to consider Jesus more than anything else. Consider him. Our confidence and hope. Verse six says, Christ is faithful over God's house." as a son, and we are his house. We are a part of his people if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our confidence and our hope are him. He's the confidence. He's the hope. It's not our ability even to consider him. It is him. And so considering him is actually trusting in him. Another word for that is believing in him. Scripturally, belief is trust. It's not just an intellectual assent. It is a life lived in relationship of trusting in him, and that's what we're invited into to consider Jesus. And as there is this invitation to consider him and to experience that hope and that confidence, there is at the same time we find a warning, and it's a pretty stern warning. We actually find multiple of them in Hebrews, and certainly in all of Scripture we find uh, these warnings, but Not only are we called to consider Jesus, we're called to take care. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There there is a significant warning here. It's just the the writer has just quoted in verses eight to eleven, verse seven to eleven, from Psalm ninety-five verses seven through eleven, which is actually a reference to what occurs in Numbers chapter twelve through fourteen, and that's this moment when Moses has led the people out of slavery. They're in the wilderness. They have the promise of God to go into the promised land. They're at a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they have the opportunity to send spies into the land to figure out what their next step is going to be. And the spies come back and they say, "Yeah, it's pretty amazing." Land flowing with milk and honey, but they're giants in the land, and we don't think we should do it. We're going to be destroyed. There are two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who say, actually, we should trust in God. But the rest of Israel says, nope, I'm out. They don't believe. That's this this reference of what's going on here. It's referenced at multiple points. And they have just witnessed amazing work of God to save them supernaturally from slavery in Egypt through the plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea. They have seen God's provision for them beyond what is imaginable for us. Like, this, you know, there's the, the, the constant, uh, if, if I could just see particular things, then, then I would believe. And, and Jesus reminds us as he's talking to Thomas, who doubted, blessed are those who, uh, who believe without seeing. Right? So, Part of that comes from just because you see doesn't mean that you're naturally just going to automatically believe. That's what's happening. That's the the warning as he talks about what happened to the Israelites. And the result was they did not get to make it into the rest, the promised land. We're gonna talk more about what that is and what that is a picture of next week in chapter four, what the rest is and the promise of rest is for us. But they didn't get it. We see later that their bodies fell in the wilderness. They didn't make it into the promised land. There is this warning. And and, and what's happening here is the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let that happen to you. This is an ancient warning. If you hear his voice and his voice is proclaimed in his word, the voice is coming in this moment. He says, so that's almost like you're going to hear his voice. But when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Repeats it again in verse 15. So we see it in verse 8 and verse 15. It is this warning that your hearts would not be hardened. What is that? How are our hearts hardened? How does that happen for us? I mean, most often it's, it's just kind of, uh, it's inertia. It's just not thinking about these things and going with the flow. This is, this is where we end up. Um, buying into the cynicism of our day. It's the world in which we swim, right? You, you may have heard uh, the, maybe the little illustration a number of times. There's two fish who get up in the morning and they're swimming out and there are two older fish who are swimming in. They say, uh, morning kids, uh, how's the water? And, and the, the fish, the younger fish look back at each other and they go, what the heck is water? It's just, the, it's just what they're in, right? It's just the world in which they live. They don't even think about what water is, and, and that's us living in this world of cynicism that I, I know infects my own heart all the time. There's a great book called Seeing Into the Cynicism, Seeing Through Cynicism, Dick Keys, a good resource that I would suggest, but just e- even realizing how cynical is the world in which we live and how it affects our own hearts. That hardens our hearts. And just going with the flow and not thinking about things. things are, if we just move with inertia in our lives and in our culture and all the busyness of everything that has to happen to uh, do our jobs and put food on the table and just take care of the logistics of life, we're not led toward Jesus. It's, it's that then hardens our heart if we don't give thought to considering who he is. But we also see then this warning in verse 13, to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts are hardened, the end of verse 13, by the deceitfulness of sin. We, 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 We think so much of ourselves, right? We hear these stories of people being scammed. How in the world would they fall for that, right? I hope that you've heard some of those stories where really smart people have fallen for things that aren't true, and you've thought, I could, if you're honest, you could see yourself falling into that, right? But too often, you know, maybe, maybe the base sin is pride. And so we think, not me, I wouldn't fall for that. But sin is again and again described as something that is deceitful to us. And partly because uh, we, we don't recognize even the water in which we exist, the world in which we exist, we, we, we don't see it. But we become also used to sin. We become, it becomes normal for us, whether it's in and around us or whether it's just in our own hearts where sin comes from, James chapter 1, from within us. I, I, I think of when I was in seminary now almost 20 years ago, I took a trip to Manila, Philippines, and we got to see a lot of really amazing things. We got to see... A seminary. we got to see uh, multiple church plants around the Manila area, and we got to see these homes for orphans that were run uh, by Filipino, essentially house parents. And, and in Manila, there is a whole community, that an economy that has grown up around the dumps. And it includes a lot of kids who don't have parents. Either they've been abandoned or their parents have died. And, uh, and so these, these homes were bringing in Kids and giving them love and shelter and food, and they told the story of this one kid that so many people loved. He was known around the dumps, and I did not give him this nickname, um, but his nickname was Rat, and uh, that's what they called him. They all affectionately talked about Rat, and it, it wasn't derogatory for whatever reason. It wasn't derogatory, you know. Go with you, not derogatory nickname, um, and. And he was drawn in to one of the homes. And he had these amazing parents who we got to spend time with that loved him and cared for him. They showed him that love. They were relational. They put food in front of him uh, multiple times every day. He had a place to sleep. And he would regularly, to the point where he never came back, would sneak out and just go and live uh, on the dumps. Because that's what he was used to. He couldn't. He was so it was so ingrained in him that this is what life was and this is what he was used to that he couldn't see the beautiful thing that he had in front of him. And, 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 and we hear that illustration, this, this true story, and we think, it doesn't make any sense, and it, it, it would not commute, compute, and it would not happen to me. And that's exactly what sin does in our own hearts. The reality is sin is deceitful, and it tells us lies. Satan is the father of lies. He leads us astray. And so we're challenged to not be deceived. And that does take work. So then how do we avoid this? How do we avoid the hardening of our hearts? We're going to go back to point one. We consider Jesus. We we focus on him. And, And the reality is we have to be intentional about this. Again, this is not where we naturally go. And so we have to think, what are the ways in which I'm going to do this? One of the ways is to worship together. I, mean, I, I pray each week that the sermon has some direction of allowing us to consider Jesus. The, the music does that. The confession does that. Confession of sin and faith. That everything we do would point us to Jesus. Our community groups are designed to do this. We've, we've put together Sunday school to allow us to be intentional, to have conversations about who Jesus is and why he matters in our lives. It does absolutely take Intentionality, because the default setting that I talked about last week, as so I referenced uh, the commencement speech by David Foster Wallace, the novelist and author, um, who's not a Christian. I'm actually going to quote the quote that I've quoted from that commencement speech in the past. I'm going to use that one this week. That there is a reality so we're being warned against the deceitfulness of sin and we're being invited to believe. We, we see this don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. They did not enter into the rest because of their unbelief, we see in verse 19. And, and here belief is trusting in and it's worshiping God. And so this quote from David Foster Wallace that reminds us that we need intentionality recognizes that we all worship something. We all believe in something. So we could, we could interchange worship and believe in. There's some fundamental thing that drives us. He says, because here's, the, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. We could say, as not believing. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, that's Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they are where you will tap real meaning in life. Then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, and the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. It goes on to say, worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. Our default setting, and we would disagree about you know, just some eternal truth that you worship, right? We would call it to worship Jesus. But the recognition that he's having here is that our default setting is to allow something else to take preeminence in our lives to be the thing that we believe in. There's a call here to look to Jesus, to be intentional about believing in him. Because the warning is, unbelief is the reason that we would not enter into the rest. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. There's a beautiful story in Matthew chapter 14 about Peter. We all all regularly reference that Jesus walked on water, but we remember that Peter walked on water. Peter's walking on water. He's looking at Jesus. and then the waves start growing up. The, the storm starts happening around him, and he gets distracted, and he looks away from Jesus and he begins to seek. It's this picture of a call to look at, to consider, to focus on Jesus, and that that's where we're empowered and where we find hope. We also see that we do this together. This, this story, it's, it's written, verse one, it says, therefore, holy brothers, this, you might have a note in your Bible that says this is understood as brothers and sisters. This is all the people. This is just the, like general mankind. This is to everybody, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, family together, part of the family of God, part of the household of God. It is described uh, at in verse six. In verse 5, we see that there is the house of God. It is the people of God. And then we find here in verse 13, this encouragement. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's called away from just ourselves. We need one another. How often is today called today? Every day. Exhort one another every day. Encourage, challenge, put Jesus in. In front of one another. We need each other. This is not something that we do alone. We don't just figure this out on our own. We do it with one another, exhort one another, be brothers and sisters together, be a part of the house of God. And all of this is pushing one another to trust, believe in Jesus, to find our confidence and our hope in him. So again, don't Go, I mean, I hope that you go away from here and go, okay, how can I be intentional? Yes, please, please do that. But don't walk away saying it's that my hope is dependent upon how good, I, good a job I do at being intentional of considering Jesus or exhorting one another. Now, the hope is in not us and our ability even to do that. It is in Jesus himself. He is our confidence. He is our hope. And so we look to him, and that is a beautiful, life-giving truth. There should be incredible assurance, incredible hope that we find, even as there is this warning, that we would look to him, we would find our confidence and hope in who he is. These are the things that we've talked about. He's the great high priest, which will be talked about more and more as referred to that in verse one as the high priest. We'll see the significance of that, but we've already seen that this is his death and his resurrection for you and for me so that we can have confidence and hope in him. Let's pray.